Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, After He Killed Him, He Cut Off His Head, David, Goliath, and Sacred Violence. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, June 21st, 2009. Those of us who went to Sunday school as kids remember flannel graph stories about David and Goliath from 1 Samuel 17. David was the youngest little brother of Jesse's eight sons, relegated to errand boy status, while his older brothers battled the enemy Philistines as manly soldiers. Twice the writer describes David as, quote, only a boy, end quote. The narrator pictures David as ruddy and handsome, hardly the traits of a warrior. When his brothers berated him when he delivered reinforcements to the front lines, David responded plaintively, Can't I even speak? 1729. Saul's armor was so big on him that he couldn't move. And then, of course, there was his famous slingshot that he wielded to slay the nine-foot Goliath, who had defiled the armies of the living God. The punchline about David and Goliath was usually something to the effect that God uses insignificant people in unlikely means to accomplish improbable feats. And of course, from a Christian perspective, that's certainly true. But there's one horrifying detail in the story that my Sunday school teacher skipped. We read in 1751 that David took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. David then displayed Goliath's head in Jerusalem. He brandished it before King Saul, and he kept his sword in his tent as a souvenir. By decapitating Goliath, David wanted to, quote, show the whole world that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. This Sunday school story made my mind ping to the decapitation of Nicholas Berg, an American businessman, in May 2004, and to numerous other expatriates and Iraqi citizens. In their book, The Next Attack, 2005, Daniel Benjamin and Stephen Simon show how decapitation, which is still a form of capital punishment in Saudi Arabia, and the signature ear-to-ear -ear throat slitting by extremists, are ways to traumatize and terrorize your enemy. They are spectacles for ogling, participatory events for those who download replays of the horrific act on the Internet. MIT's Technology Review from February 2005 reported that videos of the Berg beheading were downloaded 15 million times, crashing many servers. But decapitation, 
and this takes us back to David and Goliath, is also a public sacrament, a way of making the violence holy. And according to Benjamin and Simon, an act redolent with the sense of sacrifice in the literal execution of God's law, which to the jihadists means death for infidels and apostates. Years later, as a poet and a songwriter, David returned to this theme of sacred violence as proof of God's favor. In his acrostic Psalm 9 for this week, he insists that his cause is righteous and that his enemies are the enemies of God. He prays for God to rebuke, destroy, blot out, annihilate, and to vanquish his enemies with, quote, endless ruin, end quote, as if to erase the least and last vestige of their humanity, David prays for even the memory of them to perish. And so he concludes Psalm 9, Strike them with terror, O Lord. How should we read these two texts of terror, David and Goliath and Psalm 9? You might dismiss the decapitation of Goliath as patriotic fiction or legend, but that takes the easy way out. For some reason, the Hebrews included this story and other disturbing ones in their sacred canon. There are also any number of reasonable caveats and qualifications that perhaps mitigate the sacred horror. Maybe we have here a case of historical description of something that happened, but that does not mean that God approved of it. Or, primitive cultures back then were more barbaric than yours, which, by the way, is debatable. Then there's the idea that divine retribution for truly wicked people and nations is a necessary part of humanity's moral compass and calculus. Another idea is that war and its tragic consequences seem to be an inevitable and inscrutable part of the intersection of human history and divine sovereignty. Others suggest that later progress in God's revelation of himself supersedes earlier stories like these. And maybe poetry like Psalm 9 is just angry exaggeration or emotional overstatement. Whether ancient or modern, violence in God's name knows no boundaries. All religions have engaged in sacred terror, including widow burning, child sacrifice, caste systems, mass suicide, female genital mutilation, witch hunts, ritual abuse, ethnic cleansing, suicide bombers, and apartheid. The list is depressingly long. Christians have killed thousands in the Crusades and the Inquisitions, defended slavery, were complicit in the Holocaust that killed six million Jews, ravaged the Native American peoples, and have murdered abortion doctors and gays. I'm not sure how to read the Bible's texts of terror, but here are two suggestions. Whereas the Old Testament contains violence that is divinely sanctioned, at least according to its writers, 
In the New Testament, I can think of only two examples when the followers of Jesus wanted to use violent means for his cause. First, when James and John wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans because of their unbelief, Luke 9. And then in the Garden of Gethsemane, when his disciples tried to prevent his arrest, Mark 14. In both cases, Jesus rebuked those who tried to show their allegiance to him through violent means. Instead, he insisted that his Father in heaven causes his Son to shine on both the wicked and the righteous. He told us to love our enemies and to, good, to do good to those who persecute us, because in the end, the ultimate measure of my love for God is my love for neighbor. No one made this point better than the German pastor Martin Niemöller, 1892-1984. Niemöller protested Hitler's anti-Semitic measures in person to the Fuhrer. He was eventually arrested and then imprisoned for eight years from 1937 to 45. He once confessed, quote, It took me a long time to learn that God is not the enemy of my enemies. He's not even the enemy of his own enemies. So as Anne Lamott once observed, When God hates all the people that you hate, you can be absolutely certain that you've created him in your own image. Secondly, we should not remain silent when we see attempts to legitimize sacred violence. Instead, we should name it for what it is. We should learn the warning signs that religion has become evil and that evil has become religious. Here are eight warning signs. Number one, Fanatical claims of absolute truth. I don't mean the belief that absolute truth exists, but rather the doubt-free, uncritical confidence that one understands such absolute truth absolutely. Number two, blind obedience to totalitarian, charismatic, and authoritarian leaders or their views that undermines moral integrity personal freedom, individual responsibility, and intellectual inquiry. Number three, identifying and rationalizing end-time scenarios in the name of your religion. Number four, justifying religious ends by dubious means. Number five, any and all forms of dehumanization from openly declaring war on your enemy, demonizing those who differ from you, construing your neighbor as another, to claiming that God is on your side alone. Number six, pressure tactics of coercion, deception, and false advertisement. Number seven, alienation, isolation, and withdrawal from family, friends, and society whether psychologically or literally. In number eight, exploitation in all forms of unreasonable demands upon one's time, money, resources, family, friendships, and sexuality. Often, one or more of these danger signs combine. 
We should judge religions by their most authentic examples rather than by their worst corruptions. There's also a difference between evil committed by people who happen to be religious and evil promoted in the name of religion. Some people overstate the connection between religion and violence. And sometimes the connection between religion and violence is tenuous. Sometimes it is explicit. Sacred terror is almost always complex and bound up with other causes, social, historical, economic, cultural, and political. But at the end of the day, we must admit that there's far too much violence in the world that is fomented with a specifically religious rationale. Christians should commit themselves to do whatever they can do to stop it. And now for further reflection, what has been your experience of religious violence? Number two, contemplate the powerful words of Pastor Martin Niemöller. Number three, can you identify any of the eight warning signs in contemporary American Christianity? And finally, for further reflection, see two books, Charles Kimball, When Religion Becomes Evil, and Mark Juergensmeyer, Terror in the Mind of God, The Global Rise of Religious Violence. For books this week, we have a guest review by Chad Abbott. The title of the book is The Face on Your Plate, The Truth About Food, and the author is Jeffrey Mason. From the opening introduction and headlining title, author Jeffrey Mason demonstrates in his new book, The Face on Your Plate, a way of eating with compassion. His text focuses on the origins and many faces behind the foods we consume. Building upon the traditional of Michael Pollan's The Omnivore's Dilemma, and taking cues from his own recent psychological research into the life of elephants in a book called When Elephants Weep, he challenges us, he challenges us to begin letting go of everything we've always believed or understood for a leap into the unknown. Comparing it to the way some come into religious conversion, Mason suggests that the most logical answer to the suffering of animals in a more sustainable future to our food consumption is to take up a life of ahimsa, or non-violence, which for him ends in adopting a vegan lifestyle. One of the unique factors of this book that sets it apart from other books is that Mason comes to this task not only as a proponent of the food revolution, but also as a psychoanalyst. He sets the tone in his introduction by suggesting that at the heart of consuming our meals every day is the capacity for participating in violence or participating in compassion and empathy. He speaks of his own journey and those of others who've made similar choices and compares them to much of what our culture teaches about the realities of animals and our food. In the end, he sets out in his book to make the argument that killing animals for human consumption contributes to violence and does not take into account the enormous effect of suffering, not just on the animals themselves, 
but also upon our environment and our human health. Mason breaks the remainder of his book into five chapters, beginning with the world in which he lived. He suggests that this is the only world that we have to live in, and that our production of meat through factory farms and mass producing of cows and pigs and chickens is threatening our existence. Chapters 2 and 3 focus specifically on the treatment of animals and fish in the slaughtering process. Much of what Mason draws upon in these chapters can be found in other books, but he's added some very unique elements of psychoanalysis into the suffering of animals and how it relates to the psyche of human beings. He suggests that if most of us knew the horrors that animals go through, we would reconsider eating meat and fish. In fact, Mason suggests that the meat and dairy industries are smart in that they seek to distance the consumer from the actual slaughter of animals in the hopes that this will keep people believing that it's humane to kill animals for consumption. This factor of hiding the face that's on our plates actually leads to the most fascinating topic of his book, Denial, the subject of Mason's fourth chapter. The Hippocratic Oath to Do No Harm fills his fifth and final chapter as he demonstrates a day in the life of a vegan in the variety of ways that a person can adopt such a life. I'm convinced that this book is worth reading and offers tremendous insight into our own psyche into the psychology of our food choices. The field of food ethics and the food revolution has been so expansive in the last five years that another book conveying similar information is not really needed. The Face on Your Plate, however, is not one of those books. Well, while there are many things that Mason draws upon that could be considered a repeat of the literature, a good bulk of his book provides sound research into the psychological reasons for adopting a vegan diet. Above everything, the heart of this writer is to call each of us to a way of ahimsa, nonviolence and compassion. In my opinion, any greater call toward nonviolence, love, and compassion ought to be worth our consideration. Whether one ever becomes a vegan or not is almost secondary to the call of a compassionate life. And while Mason argues that we ought to become vegan or vegetarian, it's clear that his largest hope is that we will all have more empathy and that greater empathy will on some level lead to less suffering in the lives of animals. Vegan or not, may we all think more compassionately upon the food we eat, the face on our plates, and seek a life of empathy. The title of the book, The Face on Your Plate, The Truth About Food. The author is Jeffrey Mason, New York, W.W. W. Norton, 2009. A guest book review by Chad Abbott. For films this week, I review Anvil, The Story of Anvil, from 2008. The heavy metal band Anvil enjoyed 15 minutes of fame back in the early 1980s. That was followed by a 30-year slide into obscurity, 
despite recording a dozen albums. At age 14, Toronto singer-guitarist Steve Kudlow and drummer Rob Reiner vowed to each other to spend their lives chasing the dream of rock stardom. This documentary film finds the duo now in their early 50s, still rocking but comparing their lofty dreams with harsh reality. They both work menial jobs to support their families. An incompetent manager took them on a European tour where they played to a Romanian crowd of 174 people in a 10,000-seat venue, where they missed trains and weren't paid. But their enthusiasm, earnestness, and commitment to their craft never waver. At the end of the film, they've borrowed money to cut their 13th album, which they sell out of the back of their van, and they play a gig in Japan at the 9.45 in the morning slot. But they have lived their dream, and that's a whole lot more than many people can say. Anvil, the story of Anvil. And finally, we've posted a very short poem by Shamus Haney, who was born in 1939. Haney won the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1995. Born in Northern Ireland, Ireland, he was the oldest of nine children. Until his teenage years, he lived on his small family farm. Later, he lived in Belfast and then taught at Berkeley, Harvard, and Oxford. Listen to Haney's very short poem, Voices from Lemnos. History says, don't hope on this side of the grave. But then, once in a lifetime, the longed-for tidal wave of justice can rise up, and hope in history rhyme. Voices from Lemnos by Shamus Haney Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, June 21st, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.